Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. The city called Jerusalem. And the city called Jerusalem, because of a bunch of things that happened, basically got ransacked and destroyed in what was the Babylonian exile. Many of you guys have heard of the Babylonian exile, the Babylonians in your history class. Well, part of in the wake of the destruction and the takeover of the Babylonian empire was the city of Jerusalem basically got put into ruins. King Cyrus, the Persians take over, says everybody can go home. And over the period of about 100 years, um, they begin to rebuild this city, which was the city of God, which was the city of Jerusalem. But to this point, the city really hadn't developed. And the reason was, was because the walls around the city were the city's primary point of protection. And they wouldn't really develop a good city without good walls. And so as they're developing good walls, it's kind of a red flag to all the neighbors around the city of Jerusalem that, hey, Jerusalem's rebuilding. And as they're rebuilding this wall, as they're doing this work that God's called to do, it starts to flare up in some controversy outside of the city of Jerusalem specifically. And so for the last two weeks, basically what we talked about is what do you do, what do you do when... There is adversity to the calling of God on your life. What do you do when as Nehemiah, or as Nehemiah was in the situation that he was in, you look at your life and you realize God's called you to do something. And as Nehemiah looked at the wall, he saw a bunch of rocks and a bunch of rubble that really weren't fit to be a wall. He didn't have what we would think of, or especially what he would have thought of, as the right resources to be able to build the wall. On top of that, he didn't have the experience. Before Nehemiah comes to build this wall, Nehemiah isn't like a licensed contractor that builds wall after wall after wall after wall after wall. And all of a sudden, God says, okay, Nehemiah, I want you to take your wall building skills and go build that wall over there. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, which basically means he, saw, he sat in the capital of the world with the most powerful man in the world and hung out and tasted his wine. The best wine, by the way, in the world before the king drink. I mean, you talk about a cush job. You think you're, you know, nine to five at, you know, Starbucks is hard or, you know, wherever it is that you work. I mean, Nehemiah, man, he just lived the dream. And all of a sudden he gets called to go build a wall with relatively no experience. And here's the relevance of all that. Many of us, when we look at what God has called us to do with our life, feel both unequipped and unexperienced to do and to fulfill the call of God. That is, maybe God's called you to do something ministerially. Maybe God's called you to do something with a ministry or within a ministry. Lead a ministry, be a part of a ministry, be an integral part of a ministry. Perhaps for you, you know and you feel that your thing is not, you know, like what the Christian perspective of, like, either you're a pastor, you're a worship leader, or you're a missionary in Africa, and those are the only three things of significance that we do as Christians. You know, perhaps for you, it's none of that stuff. It is something that is incredibly significant, that you are called to be a light in your workplace. You are called, because of where you work, because of the job, the nature of the job that you're in, you are called to be a witness for God, to live a life of obedience to God. Where you work, in the bank that you work at, in the school that you work at, in the Starbucks that you work at. Hopefully, maybe for some of you in the Zaxby's that you work at. But for all of us, for all of us, perhaps, again, perhaps for you, 
It's about your home, you're, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're a mom and you're you know, raising your kids and you're just called to live a dynamic faith to be an example for your children and for maybe some moms that are in your similar stage of life. But for all of us, what we don't believe is that we are called by God to live an ordinary life. We don't believe that God, in a bod, showed up here on planet Earth, died on the cross, gave us the power of his Holy Spirit so that we could live a purposeful, a purposeless, meaningless life. We believe that God has called you to do something, whether that is leading a ministry or leading a life of incredible obedience. But oftentimes, we feel unequipped and unresourced to live into that calling of God. And if you've ever felt like that, you are in the exact place that Nehemiah probably felt as he walked along the walls of Jerusalem and saw him just in complete rubble and disarray. So as they begin to rebuild the wall, they face this outside adversity. They face this outside adversity, these people, the naysayers. It kind of escalated to there was potential physical conflict. And this week what we're going to talk about is the internal conflict that he faces in chapter 5. The internal conflict that he faces in chapter 5. Now let me tell you why that's significant. Because for all of us, we have seen and experienced internal conflict. Whether that's inside of yourself or inside of your small group, perhaps your family, perhaps your small group of friends and family. And and, and here's what I mean by that. Here's, Here's kind of the significance of this. We as churches, we as churches are great at projecting and bowing up to external outside thoughts external outside adversities but we constantly do not deal with and do not confront the internal conflict that happens especially in churches right for you maybe you you were raised in a church like this that the church had all kinds of thoughts about everybody who wasn't in church all kinds of judgments about everybody who wasn't in church meanwhile they ignore all of the greed all of the guilt they ignore all of the gossip they ignore all of the lies they ignore all of the dishealth that exists within church I mean, come on churches are notorious for being unhealthy Churches are notorious for being political. Churches are notorious for not even acknowledging the internal conflict, the internal disunity, and frankly, the internal sin that exists, but being incredibly aware of all of the external sin. Maybe for you. That's why you don't like church. Because your entire life, all you've seen is churches who ignore the internal and confront the external. Ignore the internal and confront the external. And so Nehemiah in chapter 5 begins to face up to the internal conflict, the internal discord that's happening within their building of the wall. So here's how it goes. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people. So the people are starting to, to talk about this, and maybe not just talk about this. There's an outcry of it. And, and I love how he puts this detail in, of their wives against the Jewish brothers. In other words... Nehemiah's like, okay, so it's one thing, you know, as, as all the fellows are talking about it, but then the wives start to get involved, you know, and if your house is like my house, I can deal with a lot, but as soon as my wife starts saying, you know, we really ought to talk about this, we really ought to address this, I'm like, you know, we really ought to talk about this, we really ought to address this, it just kind of carries this whole other weight when my wife gets involved in the whole equation. So the wives start talking, the people start talking, and it's against their Jewish brothers, in other words, there's something that the insiders are doing to cause conflict. Not the outsiders, not the people of another nation, not the people of another group, but the insiders are causing. Verse 2. For there were those who said, 
With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now, again, this is maybe a statement that you would read as you're going through in your quiet time and just kind of breeze over. But here's the essence of what they're saying. Our family is big and kids got to eat. Our family's big and our kids got to eat. Our family's big. We got lots of sons and we got lots of daughters. And if everyone's going to stay alive, if everyone's going to be healthy, then we've got lots of mouths to feed. There's lots of grain that we need to take in as a family in order for everyone to survive. But here's the problem. Verse 3, there were those... There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, here's kind of begins to lay out the problem. The rich people in the community started to loan to the poorer people in the community who were the ones who were building the wall. And they started to do it in such a way that they would tax them or they would charge interest to them far beyond what they were supposed to or what they were allowed to. In fact, here, here was the, the thing. In Jewish law, a Jew wasn't allowed to tax or wasn't allowed to charge interest to another Jewish person if they lent him money. It was supposed to be an even trade because we're all in the same family. But what they would do is these people, the rich people, would see the poor people. And most of the people who were building the wall at the time were the poor folks. In fact, there was a few rich folks involved, but by and large, it was the poorer people. It was the people of less fortunate, you know, means and resources that were building the wall. And as they're starting to build the wall, they can't provide for the family because like most people who don't have a ton of means and don't have a lot of income, they don't have a big savings account that as they're building the wall over the next two months, they can just float off of. It's paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. And as they're paycheck to paycheck to paycheck, you just can't do I mean, I want you to imagine for yourself, many of you, many of us are in this situation where you don't have big savings, you don't make tons of money, you don't have all this stuff, and all of a sudden, God calls you to quit your job for two months, not get paid, and live and do his work. He'd say, well, that's fantastic, but my family has still got to eat. And so they would essentially collateralize loans with their fields to the rich folk. And the rich folk, on top of that, would charge them a 1% monthly or a 12% annual interest rate on everything that they loaned them. And the people are running out of their fields. They're running out of their money because the insiders are using and abusing the people that are building the walls that are blessing and helping and building their very own community. So as this happens, it takes a step further. And there were those who said, verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Not only are we trying to eat, we also have to pay taxes. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as the children, uh, as their children. In other words, we're, we're the same people. We're both flesh. We're both blood. Our children are the same. Our people are the same. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have fields and our vineyards. In other words, they would look at it and say, you know what? We can't pay them, and we have to pay taxes on top of that. And our fields are already have a loan. They already have a mortgage out. They're already collateralized to, to, to substantiate some of their loan. And we still have to pay the king, and we can't pay the king. We're trying to eat on one hand, and we're trying to pay taxes on the other hand. Meanwhile, we're trying to pay taxes. We can't pay taxes. The only way we can pay taxes and not get in trouble with the king, because if we get in trouble with the king and don't pay our taxes, by the way, we may die is if we sell our children into slavery. And it was the insiders. 
that were causing this problem. It was the insiders, not the outsiders, that posed the biggest threat to the building of the wall. And here's what Nehemiah knew. If he continued to let the internal conflict fester, if he continued to let the internal conflict go without being confronted and addressed, the wall would never, ever be built. So here's what he does. Two steps. Verse 6. I was very angry, understatement, when I heard their outcry in these words. So verse 7, number 1. I took counsel with myself. In other words, here's what's interesting. The first thing that Nehemiah doesn't do is hear this and just haul off and respond. The first thing that Nehemiah doesn't do is to say, I can't believe, I mean, come on, this would, this would be so infuriating if you're the leader, that you see one group of people that you're leading charge another group of people that they're leading, not only a high tax, where they're not supposed to charge a tax at all, but these people are selling their children off to slavery. What we're going to find out in a little bit is these are children that they're selling off into slavery who they had just bought back from slavery. In other words, they had already been enslaved, they had already made that mistake, and they had already funded the recapturing of these people, and now what's happening again, are you kidding me? And instead of Nehemiah just holding off and responding, he stops and pauses and thinks. Let me, let me just tell you from my experience why that's so powerful. Anger always clouds judgment. Frustration always clouds judgment. You can respond in your anger and you can respond in your frustration, but your anger and frustration-filled response is almost always clouding your judgment. Because just as a whole, just a principle, this is, you know, this is a freebie for, this, for today. You don't have to believe in the Bible to know this. Your emotion will always cloud your judgment. Your emotion will always cloud your judgment. The more emotional you are about something, the less judgment that you have, the much less clarity that you see with your judgment. This is why you see people, people who are complete weirdos, who are completely using them, who are completely abusing them, because they're in love, because you're so emotional about that person, you can't see clearly. So Nehemiah pauses, because he knows that anger and frustration is going to cloud his judgment, and he takes counsel with himself. He thinks about it first. Then, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. What's interesting is, is it pauses there and there's kind of a gap in the story. Because he talks to them first, and apparently that didn't go as well as he wanted it to. We don't know why it didn't go as well. We didn't know what exactly happened. But the next thing you know, Nehemiah gets a great council of people together. Halfway through verse 7, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, he said, this is what I said, we, as far as we as a, are, are able, have, brought, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation. In other words, they've been sold, we spent lots of money to get them back. But you even sell your brothers, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, and let me just pause and say this. When you have a confrontational conversation, you know how it is, like you're thinking about something you need to talk about, something you need to address. You got that person that you've, you know, they've been doing this at work and you can't wait to talk to them or this person that you, you know, whatever, this parent, I can't believe, holy cow, you know, your kid, oh my gosh. And this is like the dream that you're gonna talk to them and they're gonna be like, oh, you know, 
you had such a great point that they had nothing to say back. And you're like, I am God. You know, that's kind of how we view that conversation. And then I'm going to say, and then they're not going to have anything to say because they're dumb and they you know, have nothing to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and the grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, their percents of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, Nehemiah says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the action step. If you really don't have anything to say, I want you to give it all back. Everything that you've taken from them, everything that you've collateralized from them, all the interest that you've charged from them, I want you to take all of it back. The response, verse 13, verse 12. They said, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Nehemiah takes it a step further and says, so I called the priest because probably he didn't trust them. Okay, cool, yeah, you're going to give it back. Right. So then... So I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So maybe he's shaken and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now let me kind of make a couple observations as we're going through this. Number one, I just think it's dynamic. I think it's important, and I think this is the over, um, over, overly missed, I guess I would say. This is, this is the part that we read, and it almost seems intuitive, but this is the part that we read that seems intuitive that we just miss over and over and over and over and over again. It's that Nehemiah actually confronted the internal conflict. Nehemiah actually confronted and dealt with the internal conflict. Let me tell you why that's so important. We are great at bowing up to outsiders, but terrible at confronting and dealing with insiders. Church-specific stuff. So if you're a church person, you know this and you've experienced this. So church people, you've seen, you've experienced that we as a church, we as churches, we as the church universal are great at projecting this is what that people group's doing wrong, this is what that people group's doing wrong, this is why that people group is so sinful. Meanwhile, the entire world looks at us and says, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're telling us you're wrong. Have you, have you seen a church lately? Do you know how, un- how unhealthy those places are? Do you know how many lies go around? Do you know how much gossip goes around? Do you I mean, come on, you're going to talk to us informatively and intuitively about our sexuality? Do you know how many people are sleeping with each other? Do you know how many people are cheating on each other? Do you know how many marriages end a divorce? And you're going to talk to us. You know Why? It's not because they're wrong. It's not because they're, you know, some way uninformed. It's because they're right. And it's because we always, 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 always would prefer to deal with the external than deal with the internal because the internal is much, much more personal. We're great at the external, we love the external. And we avoid the internal. And churches, as a result, are notorious for being judgmental to the outsider and overly loving to the insider when the Bible speaks the opposite. 
But we are to love, love, love the outsider. And judge, judge, judge the insider. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole thing. As you read it, and as you're kind of maybe thinking about some conversations that you feel perhaps you should have, or some things you think maybe you should say, or some issues that you've seen, you know, that, 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 that you think need to be addressed. And as you're processing this, and maybe you've got a friend, maybe you've got some issues in your own life that you're thinking about. Here, here, here's the, here's the, the pushback in this whole thing. Here's the recoil in the response to this. If I have this conversation, they're probably not going to listen. If I have this conversation, they're probably not going to listen. If I say what I think God's called me to say, if I address the problem that I see, if I deal with the issue that I think needs to be dealt with, then I don't think they're going to listen. And here's the problem. For many of us, we're right. They won't listen. Because I think at the core of the problem, the internal conflict of the church. By the way, again, if you're here this morning, you're kind of just checking out church. You're just interested in church. This is a great Sunday for you because you can look at us as a church. You can look at the churches as a whole and say, you know what? You guys are pretty jacked up. I've been thinking that for a long time. I'm finally glad a pastor said that, you know. So, amen, I'm coming out to your church next week to see what else he makes fun of you guys about and convicts you guys about. But if you're inside of the church, if you're inside of the church, the reason that we see this and we don't address it is simple. It's because we know deep down, we know know deep down that we perhaps aren't living the life that God's called us to live in. They're going to point that out in us. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about ultimate holiness and sanctification. I'm talking about simply living a life worthy of the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what happened with Nehemiah. This is why. This is why Nehemiah when he talked, no one had anything to say. This is why Nehemiah when he talked, everybody listened and everybody responded because of these next couple verses. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, in other words, from the very, from the very beginning, from the very get-go, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, for a 12-year period, neither I nor my brothers ate the food in allowance of the governor. In other words, as the governor, we had an allowance for food that came from the people. We had an allowance for food that came from their grain, that came from their oil, that came from their livestock. We had, we had an allowance as the governor of what we were allowed to take. The former governors, by the way, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them and from their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. In other words, it wasn't just food, it was money. The governors were getting rich, and it was legal. It was normal, and it was expected. Even their servants lorded it over the people. In other words, the governors were so wealthy that even the servants of the governors would look at the people in their their poorness, look at the people in their situation, and say, I can't believe you. But... I did not do so because of the fear of God. Huge statement. Nehemiah looks at this sentence and basically says, hey, it's not because I'm a good person. It's because I fear God. It's because of my relationship with God. It's because of my belief in God that I am not going to take advantage, that I am going to lovingly than the people who I have seen go before me. I also preserved, persevered in the work on the wall. He was doing it with them. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. In other words, all of them were, were, were shoulder to shoulder with people. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from nations that were around us. Now that was prepared, by the way, at my expense. In other words, Nehemiah said, hey, just, just, just so there's clarity. I want you to know that when I did this, when I did this, I didn't say, okay, I'm just going to share, you know, I charged you guys, I laid a burden on you guys, but I'm going to share with everybody. Nehemiah says, not only did I not take what I should have gotten and what I could have gotten, but I'm going to invite 150 people in that are going to eat at my table, insiders. In fact, I'm even going to take some outsiders, and I am going to pay for the entire thing. 
For each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. In other words, as Nehemiah looked into this, he said, you know what? I have an allowance that is allotted to me as the governor, but I choose not to take that allowance because that puts too heavy of a burden on the people. The significance behind what Nehemiah is saying is simply this. He led and lived with so much moral authority that when he spoke, people listened. Nehemiah lived with so much moral authority that when he spoke, people listened. Nehemiah lived in such a way that when he talked to the governors, when he talked to the rich people, when he talked to the people who were charging the taxes on the people, when he talked to the people who were charging the interest on the people, when he talked to the people who had collateralized the loans for the people, when he spoke to those people, it wasn't a, you know what, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to. Meanwhile, I'm getting rich, I'm getting rich, I'm getting rich, I'm getting rich. Because if Nehemiah had said that, but been at the exact same position as Nehemiah saying that, they would have looked at him and said, Nehemiah, that's ridiculous. You're telling us to give up this. Meanwhile, you're getting filthy rich out the people. Meanwhile, you're eating all this food from the people. Meanwhile, you're laying this burden. You're telling us to give that burden up? Nehemiah, we're not going to do that because you're doing the exact same thing. The reason we don't address internal conflict is oftentimes because we know internally we have no moral authority to say that. And we are oftentimes right. We need more Nehemiahs in the church. We need more men and more women in the church who live in such a way that as they see sin, as they see issues, both in their own life as well as other people's lives, they address them. See, truthfully, for insiders, again, a lot of the reasons that we don't address the sin is because we don't see the sin because we're so personally involved in sin. And your sin will always detour you and drive you away from helping someone else in their sanctification, in their holiness. It will always detour you from the conflict, always detour you from confronting the internal conflict. Because you know, and I know, deep down, we're guilty of the exact same thing. But as Nehemiah spoke, he spoke and he lived in such a way that when he talked, people listened and people responded. See, the problem with the church isn't simply an avoidance. It's a personal sin issue. This is why Nehemiah was able to speak and have influence. Now, in, the, in, in this whole thing, in this whole idea, let me tell you, the cause and effect behind this is so real. It's so tangible within the church. I mean, you know this again. Churches are notorious for saying outsider, 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 even sometimes in the church, congregation, congregation, congregation. Meanwhile, You've got pastors, you've got church leaders. You know, you've got a pastor that says, you shouldn't do that with your body. Meanwhile, homeboy weighs 350 pounds. 
Couldn't run under a 10-minute mile if his, if his life depended on it, you know. He's like, you shouldn't put that in. You shouldn't put that in. Meanwhile, Whataburger, triple meat, triple cheese, triple meat, triple cheese, triple meat. I mean, you know, just this like, just put whatever, do whatever. We're going to ignore the elephant in the room, the sometimes literal elephant, the gluttony in the room. You know, we're just going to ignore that because you shouldn't do that with your body. You know, you sinful person. <laughs> Meanwhile, the group's looking at like, man, what did you eat last night? Are you kidding? You're going to tell me? We become enslaved to the sin. We become in bondage to the sin. And as in return, we don't confront. And as a return, there's internal. And so what we love to do is in response, project against the external because oftentimes the external doesn't know the depth of what's happening internal. <laughs> Nehemiah saw that and said, if I continue to let this happen, we will never build the wall that God has called us to build. Let me just tell you, if we continually neglect the internal sin in our lives, if we continue to neglect the internal issues that happen within our church, and if we continue to neglect the obvious things that need to be addressed, which anybody and everybody can see, we will never become the church that God has called us to be. We will never become a church that reaches the city. We will never become the church who builds the wall that glorifies him the way that Nehemiah was called to do. What if, let me just put it this way. We've all, this is, well, I guess perhaps a little bit generational, but still. We've all been at the point where, you know, you're at maybe at nighttime and you're on Facebook and you're reading somebody, you know, posts something so ridiculous that you just, there's something that wells up inside of you. Maybe you're not like me, but I, I was thinking the other day, I don't think I get, um, I don't get road rage. I get like social media rage, you know, where it's like, I don't really mind if you cut me off in traffic. I'm just, uh, you probably had somewhere to be. But, you know, if you write something that's just blatantly dumb on Facebook, like there's something inside of me that's like, you, you know, I mean, I just, I'm sitting there, I'm like cracking my knuckles, getting ready to write a response and thinking, let me, let me, let me, because, because I'm sitting there thinking, you know, man, you are so dumb. I can't believe you did. You were, I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe you would think that. I mean, good grief. You know, do you even think, do you even have a brain? You know, we kind of think of those, all those things. And I can't wait to write my response. Meanwhile, I haven't even addressed the fact that I haven't read the Bible in the last month. Your sin can seem so egregious, but the fact that I know as a Christian, God has called me to daily pursue a relationship with him, and I have not cracked the Bible, I have not prayed to my Heavenly Father, I have not done any of those things. What if, what if there was as much as you feel when you read and you see, and you say, how dumb could that be? How, how could you even possibly think that? How can you, I mean, not only think that, but you communicated it. What if, in the same way that sometimes deep down inside of us, there's a desire, there's like this burning passion to write back a response, to just shut them down what if there was a burning passion to instruct and to cut to uh to in, in some way shape or form whether it's through a conversation and mostly through conversations with people of accountability and people in small groups what if there was that same burning passion to communicate the sin in our own life to live with transparency in such a way that we weren't just pushed to confront the outsider but we were bold enough to put our own sin before other people. Not like, here's what I did on Facebook. But the way that you talk to your accountability partner, you talk to the person that disciples you. What if we were as driven to confront the internal conflict as we are to address the external conflict? How much more holy would we be? How much more loving would we be?
And Nehemiah sees this and knows. Man, if we're ever going to become this people, we've got to address it. We've got to address it. We've got to address it. And here's here's the silly part about this whole thing. Here's what we believe through Jesus. That ultimately, God saw our sin. God sees our sin. God saw and sees our sinfulness. What we believe is that Jesus saw our sinfulness, God saw our sinfulness, and did not hold that sinfulness against us. He saw it and sent his son to die for it. That on the cross... Jesus took the sin of the world. Jesus took the sin of anybody and everybody who had placed their faith, their hope, and trust in him. Jesus, on the cross, freed us from the guilt, from the shame, and from the enslavement that the sin causes in our lives. That the things that we oftentimes feel ashamed of and refuse to confront, Jesus has already died for and freed us from, but we have gone back into enslavement to it. We are selling ourselves back to the very thing that Jesus bought us and brought us from. And the good news is you have a heavenly father. You have a good, good heavenly father who sees us, who sees me, and who addresses and who addressed our sinful nature, who set us free, who did not hold our sins against us, who offered ultimate grace, ultimate love, ultimate forgiveness, and ultimate acceptance on the cross and freed us from the bondage, from the shackles of the slavery of our sin so that we would no longer be defined and enslaved to our sinful nature. Yet we go back to it. Over and over. Let me, let me tell you what I hope happens after this. I hope after this, there's conversations. I hope after this, there's conversations between people. And not a conversation that says, hey, I've seen you, I think you need to stop. I would love if the communal response to this as a church was not, I need to hold this person accountable and I need to hold that person accountable. I would love if the, if the response of our church was to simply take a step back and think as Nehemiah did and do what Jesus said, which is to take the plank out of my own eye before I have the moral authority and the clarity to take the plank out of anybody else's. That after this, we go and said, you know what? I have somebody I need to call. I have somebody I need to text. I have somebody I need to talk to. I have this issue. I have this pattern in my life. I have this thing that I know that God has called me to holiness. God has called me to be purity, and I'm sleeping around. I know that God has called me to generosity, and I haven't given two nickels since the time I became a Christian. I know that God has called me to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I haven't told anybody about Jesus. In fact, I've been ashamed of the gospel, not proud to proclaim the gospel. I have something that I need to tell someone, and if accountability sprung up and discipleship sprung up as people went to people that they knew and that they talked to because when you do that and when you live with moral authority when you talk people listen because there are men in my life and let me tell you there are tons and tons of people in my life that if you say something I'll take it into consideration but I'm not going to take it to heart automatically but there are a few men in my life that when they say Ben you ought to Ben you ought to think about Ben you ought to consider Ben you ought to change Ben, you ought to stop or Ben, you ought to start. I listen and respond to every word they say. And those are the men and women in my life that I have seen live with such incredible moral authority 
that when they say and when they talk, I listen. Now, how incredible, how dynamic of a church, of a community would it be if we did this, if we addressed over and over and over and over and over the internal, over and over and over, we addressed our personal sin. We got so good at it that we didn't have to hold each other accountable because it's almost just like over-regurgitation of oversharing. It's like, dude, stop. Just, I get it. You're sinful. We, we get the point. How much honesty, how much clarity, how much integrity and character would be defined in the local church, in the congregation, in the body of Christ? That would be biblical. That would be an example and that would be different than perhaps what we've experienced. Let me, let me tell you, I'll, I'll end with this. Let me, let me tell you my dream for our church. I hope and I pray. And the reason I pray and I hope is because I know that I am wholly insufficient to lead a group to this. But I hope and I pray that the closer you get to our church, perhaps you've been, again, you've been involved in a church the closer you got, the more information you knew, the more you understood about the workings and the inner workings, the more you were driven away. The closer you got, the more dishealth. The closer you got, the, lack, the more of the lack of character. The closer you got, the more things that you just wish I didn't know and I never understood. The closer you got, the weirder and more hypocritical and political it got. My hope and our dream for our church is that the closer you get, the closer you get, the more you fall in love with the church. The closer you get, the more you're impressed by the character. The closer you get, the more impressed you are by the integrity. The closer you get, the more impressed you are with the health of this body of Christ. That the closer you get to our church, the more you aren't repelled away, but the closer you get to our church, the more you're attracted to it. And I know that I am sinful and corrupt just like everybody else. But I pray that that's the church that we become and we only become that as each one of us as individuals confronts the internal conflict, confronts the internal obstacles that are keeping us from building the wall that God has called us to build in our lives. So why in the world, why in the world would you, or would I, or would we go back to being slaves? Go back to being shackled to the sin that Jesus freed us from. Because if Jesus freed you from it, then why in the world do you still hold yourselves accountable and guilty for it. That sin no longer defines you. That sin no longer holds you back. That sin has been forgiven and you have been freed from it. So do not, do not, do not, do not go back to it. Absolutely confront it at every corner that you can. In this service, we're going to sing one more song together. And I just feel like at the end of this, one of the, one of the reasons why I love singing this song right now is because it reminds us that ultimately we are sinful. Ultimately we have messed up. But we serve a good, good Father 
who does not hold our sin against us, so why in the world would we hold it against us? Let's pray together.